0: Amen. Turn, please, to Philippians 3. We're back in Philippians again, and should be able to finish the book rather, well, Now nah, I won't say shortly, because chapter 4 is really good. We'll spend some time in chapter 4. Philippians chapter 3. If you have an outline, it's examples, good and bad. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about. We, you know, in the latter years of my ministry, um, you know it, it's been a pleasure and a blessing to be able to actually mentor some men and some pastors, or even help some pastors and be an example to others that, that they've said, you know, And often we are examples and we don't even realize it. And being a parent is probably the best example of um, being uh, that's best, best example of being an example. Let me put it that way. Your kids watch you, especially when you're young. They listen to what you say. But you know, what you say is one thing. What you do is what they're really watching. What you are really like is what they're really watching. And and parents, you can't fool your kids because you're with them 24-7. Well, not all the time, but you're with them a lot more than anyone else is. And so they see you and they know. They see you at the best of times. They see you at the worst of times. And mostly the regular times, because thankfully the best times don't last forever and the worst times don't last forever. Regular times are what we mostly have. you know. Well, they watch and they learn and they grow and that's part of what God has ordained. He wants us as parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, anybody having any kind of uh, effect on children in your life, to actually have that positive effect on their life. Now here, in Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to read verses um, 17 through chapter 4, verse 1, and then we'll go through it verse by verse. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have now told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, According to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my beloved. I think Paul kind of liked these guys and girls, don't you think? You know, just notice what he talks about my longed for brethren. By brethren, as we see that in the scriptures, it's usually um, in the nominative um, case, just by way of grammar. in in the plural, and it has to do with men and women. It doesn't just mean, And whenever I say brethren, I mean the same thing, men and women, and uh, that's a a good way to put it. And um, my joy and crown. He said that in other places, too, talking about his beloved ones. So stand fast in the Lord, beloved. So I think we get an idea of Paul's affection for these Philippian believers. And so he said in verse 17, Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. And, um, you know, it's kind of interesting in the Greek, imitators together of me be brethren. Uh, It's not good English, so we have to smooth it out to that. But that's what he's talking about. It's a loving call. He uses this term for fellow believers. And so you might say, well, wait a minute. Paul, you're telling us that you're an example to us? You're not perfect. Paul would be the first one to tell you he's not perfect. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us that in verse 12 of chapter 3, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. let me just give you a word from being a a parent myself, now and now get to be a a grandparent, uh, to so far uh, 11 children, 11 grandchildren, you know. Uh, You will not be perfect in their eyes, but I'll tell you something that can make a big effect on them. It's when you admit that you're wrong. Do something wrong and admit that you're wrong. And even apologize to them. You know? It'll make a big difference. And that's just being real, you know. You don't have to be absolutely perfect to be a good example. There are, if if that was the case, there wouldn't be any good examples on the earth. It would be impossible, you know. But we're told to walk in his steps. The Lord Jesus Christ was the perfect example on the face of the earth. And we're told to walk in his steps. And Paul himself said, Follow me as I follow Christ. And uh, what he means by that is also the inverse being true. If I don't follow Christ, don't follow me. Follow me as I follow Christ. So we profit from earthly role models. We profit from earthly examples. At birth we're given parents. And you know what? If our parents are bad examples, that will be a hardship to us. Uh, If we're orphans, that's a great hardship. But remember, God promised to be a father to the fatherless and the orphans. So we always have Him to look to. Good role models shape us. But um, I'll tell you where you don't find good role models generally. The world of sports. Not too many good role models there. There are a few. Hollywood. Maybe two or three. <laughs> you know. But this is where the world looks for role models. This is where they look to try to see what a, a man is like or what a, a woman is like. Uh, the music industry? Uh, not too much. Christian music? How about that? Uh, we won't talk about it. Okay. <laughs> so, so, role models. You know, the role models really, the best role models are the people that you actually know, the people you actually interact with, the people that you actually see, and you can see their lives. And actually, we're told that in the scriptures, where uh, Peter writes and says, The elders who are among you, I exhort. And then he shows humility by saying, Myself, who am a fellow elder. He's an apostle. He calls himself a fellow elder. He says, But the elders who are among you, you know, if you're, you know, you ought to be accessible. Your pastor ought to be accessible to you. You ought to be able to talk to your pastors, you know. And uh, we try to make ourselves accessible here to you. And try to make sure that uh, we get to know you, and that you get to know us too. Well, Paul was in prison as he writes this. He said, join in following my example. He's not asking them to become prisoners. He says, and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. And then he talks about walking again. He says, for many walk, of whom I've told you often. So the Apostle Paul, you know, a grand example of what we should be in Jesus Christ the Lord. Verse 18, for many walk, of whom I've told you even often, and now even tell you weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame who set their mind on earthly things. False doctrine. False teachers. He would already warned them against those who preached the gospel with less than pure motives. Got to go all the way back to chapter 1, and I won't do that right now. We, we preached a couple messages on it. But in chapter 1, there was that perplexing statement about those that, that preach trying to make things even worse for Paul. You go, how in the world could that be? Well, there's rivalries, there's jealousies. But they were preaching a a pure gospel. So Paul doesn't call them heretics. And Paul doesn't say, don't listen to them. And and so there's that aspect. It's possible to preach the gospel with less than pure motives. But we as preachers want to make sure our motives are also correct. But look at chapter 3, verse 2. Here's people that Paul has no use for. No use for what they're spouting. No use for what they're saying. Paul says, beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. And of course, he's talking about the Judaizers. The Judaizers said, you cannot be saved unless you're circumcised after the manner of Moses. They made a prerequisite to salvation to be this earthly model. Then they tried to take the Old Testament ceremonial laws and bind them upon the people. And turn them into Jews before they could become Christians. Paul says, beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision, who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. So they believed they had this great spirituality. But Paul says, we, Those that know the Lord, those that have been spiritually circumcised, are the true circumcision. We worship God, we glory in Christ, and we put no confidence in the flesh. And of course, those are all the things that um, the Judaizers were doing, as you can see. Well, now as we are in verses 18 and 19, it's not as clear cut. We don't know exactly who He's talking about. We don't know who He's warning them of. For many walk of whom I have told you often, and I'll tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. And then you can see what happens to them. We don't know exactly who they are. We don't know what false doctrine they were peddling. It was obviously false doctrine. They were against the cross of Christ. Well, I think there's a reason for that. And I think it's helpful for us that there isn't something given like was given in two. Three, two, we can clearly see. There's the Judaizers. You know, beware of dogs. The Judaizers considered Gentiles and and others, uncircumcised people, to be nothing more than like dogs. Beware of evil workers. Uh, They were trying to make themselves look uh, more holy by the amount of laws they could keep and how fastidiously they could keep them, even to the the tithing of mint and anise and, and small items like that. And then beware of the mutilation, Paul calls calls the physical circumcision that they were touting, mutilation. I don't think Paul made any friends doing that with the Judaizers. But Paul wasn't trying to be friends with the Judaizers. He was trying to preach the gospel. And of course, Paul also had hopes that those Judaizers would come to faith in Christ and see things differently, just like he had come to Christ and seen things so differently. But who are these in verse 18? We simply don't know, and there's a reason for that. You can actually fit just about any heresy that exists into verse 18. You know, If they don't preach Christ crucified, salvation by grace alone, faith alone, by Christ alone, then they fit into the category of verse 18. They're preaching a different gospel. I got a letter this week. At first, I thought it was a personal letter because it was handwritten, personally, on the front cover with a with a return address and a name that I didn't know. And so I opened the letter up to see what it had to say, and it turned out that uh, it was a letter from a Jehovah Witness that was inviting me to watch their. Yeah, some of you got this same letter from different ones. Yeah, I know it's difficult for them to go door to door right now. And so I'm, a lot of them have taken to writing letters and such like that. I'll commend their diligence. I will not commend their doctrine. you know. And so, you know, um, we just have to look at things properly. I prayed for the lady. I didn't pray with her. But I prayed for the lady as I read the letter, thinking about uh, all of these letters that she was writing and putting them out all over the place, no doubt paying for her own postage and such like that. Very A lot of work, a lot of work. But it wasn't God's work. So, may the Lord work in great ways in her life. We do not despise her. We pray for her. But these are enemies of the cross. Enemies of the cross. They're still around. They take many different forms. They have many different philosophies. But they have some things in common. And you can see them here. The first thing is they're enemies because they're opposed to the things of God. The things contained in the Word of God. And they're vocal about it. And in a situation, and in many situations around the world today, uh, when combined with government, this results in persecution. And there are many brothers and sisters Being persecuted even at this very hour because they stand for the cross of Christ. Their God is their belly. Now that's interesting. It it doesn't mean they're overweight, okay? It doesn't mean that, you know? But it's interesting what it does mean. We find the same word for belly in Romans 16 18, and I put it on your outline there. Um, It's about dangers in the church for those who are such. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. The Greek word there is koilea, and it is literally belly. But it can mean appetites, really. It means desires and appetites, especially the physical desires of the body. So they're slaves to their own appetites. They're slaves to their own base desires. And, um, well, you can see that kind of thing today in modern-day America. Protests demanding the right to murder their babies, pride marchers flaunting their sin, and society standing with them, commending them for their own bravery, whose glory is the shame whose glory is their shame. Paul is echoing Hosea 4.7, I will change their glory into shame. Hosea 4.7. Simply put, things that should be hidden, things that they should be ashamed, but instead are proud, and those who agree with them are proud, and consider them to be virtuous. And politicians hope to gain votes, of those who practice such things. There are are many politicians today, I tell you, that at one time were anti-abortion, but they realized they could never win with a platform like that. So they changed. They changed their core belief and sold out. Well, glory is their shame. It will not always be that way. There will be no celebration of sin at the great judgment. There will be shame, and there will be misery, and there will be eternal destruction, and here we go. Their end is destruction. These things destroy a society. And if you're a student of history, you know that to be true. It's so easy for us. We've got to be careful. I, I have to be careful. Because it's easy to be consumed with anger against those who flaunt their sins so grievously in front of us. It's easy to rise up in anger. But let's think what that means whose end is destruction. We're talking about individual destruction. We're talking about people going to an eternal hell. We're talking about being closed from the presence of God. They're enamored by the world. They're enamored by the philosophies of the world. They're blind. They don't know any better. Their minds are darkened. We pity them and look for opportunities to proclaim the gospel to them because the same God who saved you is able to save them. Their minds on earthly things, the here and now is what matters. What will benefit me? How can I satisfy myself? How can I do my own thing with no consequences? This destruction is eternal destruction, eternal damnation. Unless one turns to the Lord in saving faith. And when you turn to the Lord in saving faith, everything changes. Yeah. Attitudes change. Hearts change. Ideas change. Desires change. Purpose change. Goals change. So aren't you glad that there's a Savior? A Savior of sinners, who's taken so many of us who were like this and made us to be sons and daughters of God. That's by His grace and for His glory. And so, our citizenship. Our citizenship. Verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able, even to subdue all things to Himself. Now, it was interesting to me, to notice the Greek words here that seemed so familiar. And they were familiar because we saw them in chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. Now I'll just go over four of those words for you here and that should help us. But first let me read you uh, chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. You can look on your outline or you can turn there. Only let your conduct, and you notice i bolded conduct. That's because that's one of the words. I bolded the words that we're, that we're going to be looking at. In English it doesn't come across quite as easily as it does in Greek. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast, that's another one, in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. Okay, so let's look at four key words here. First of all, our citizenship. You're not going to see that word so much in uh, chapter 1, verse 27, but uh, I remember as I preached it that this was talking about citizenship, that's like your conduct. And it's a, a form of that word, it's a form of the Greek word. And it's used in 3.20 for citizenship. And uh, let your conduct, which could be translated, behave like citizens. So we see a form of that here. That we're being exhorted to behave like citizens. And here our citizenship is in heaven. Not citizens of Philippi. Oh, certainly they were. They were citizens of Philippi. And they should give all proper honor and deference as they can... But I have to say, as they can. Because you've got to remember that as citizens of Philippi, they were also Roman citizens automatically. They had Roman citizenship just because they were born in Philippi. That was the great honor bestowed upon them. But the problem is emperor worship. They were expected to worship the emperor, you know. And um, those in Philippi. Christians couldn't do that. They were citizens of Philippi, but their greatest citizenship was in heaven. And it's so much more glorious to be a citizen of heaven than any earthly kingdom. So much more glorious to be a citizen of heaven than a citizen of Rome. To have Jesus Christ instead of Caesar. And back then, as Paul was in prison in Philippi, and as the Philippians, or not in Philippi, in Rome, and as the Philippians were reading this particular letter, I doubt anybody would have expected that Rome would ever fall. It was a powerful nation. It was a strong nation. It was a nation that you just didn't go against them. Look what happened to the Jews in 70 AD when they went against Rome. You know, they'd be crushed. Okay? That's what they did. As long as you went with the program, you were fine. Go against us. You'll be crushed by this great military power. Well, nobody would have suspected in that day that Rome would fall. But every kingdom of the world will fall. It'll either fall in a way that everybody sees it fall, or it'll fall at the return of Christ, Jesus the Lord. There's only one eternal kingdom. It's God's kingdom. You know? And we find that in the book of Daniel, don't we? Where it talks about the kingdoms that are coming, and then there's a stone that's cut out of the mountain, crushes all the kingdoms, and grows and takes over the entire world. Okay, In the book of Daniel. Okay. Second thing, destruction. See destruction in 3.19. Whose end is destruction. Again, it's kind of hidden in the translation that I have. It's called perdition there in the New King James. But really, it's exactly the same Greek word and um, the exact same word in both places. Destruction, not annihilation. And there's a paraphrase of of 128. If you look on your outline there and look at verse 128, Wymouth's paraphrase reads like this. Well, it says, not in any way terrified by your adversaries, okay, it goes, your fearlessness will be to them a sure token of impending destruction. But to you, it means your fearlessness, will be a sure token of your salvation, a salvation coming from God. So that's paraphrased, but I thought it said it very well. I thought it was very, very true. And then, third of all, The Savior. Your salvation is that from God. Okay? That's true. The Savior. It's not the same word, but it's the same root. Okay? Savior and salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Did you know that the Roman emperors considered themselves to be saviors? They were the saviors of the Roman citizens. But these Christians in Philippi knew Caesar was a counterfeit Savior. Caesar could never do what our Savior does, transform our lowly bodies into the likeness of His glorious body. Now transformation is coming. Today, you may have a body that's groaning a little bit, a body that's aching a little bit, or, or you're young and strong and you think, that'll never happen to me. Okay. Ah, the wise ones are laughing. <laughs> okay. okay. Today we dwell in lowly bodies. But Christ, you know, think about the Lord Jesus Christ. In His incarnation. It's called His humiliation in theology. In theology we talk about the, His uh, humiliation and His exaltation. And what we mean by the humiliation is the fact that He's come down to earth. He's left of the splendors of heaven, and taken on a true body and a reasonable soul from the womb of the Virgin Mary. He's been born as a human, lives his life as a human, walking among sinners, even though he himself is absolutely sinless, being grieved at unbelief, but knowing that he has a mission, and knowing he has a goal, he's going to die on that cross for sinners." So he sets his face to the cross and goes through the ultimate humiliation as they do to him exactly what Pastor Mike read to us today. And it's shocking and it's horrible. And and if you really stop to think about it, tears will come to your face. We think about what Christ endured. Well, you know, it was with a purpose and on purpose. That was his humiliation. He died. He was buried. But the exaltation was coming. You know. Rises again. Ascends into heaven, where he sits at God's right hand in a glorious, remade body that he will inhabit and have for all eternity. You know, the God man has a body for all eternity now. And we're going to have a body like his if you're in Christ, if you know him. You, too, will have a glorious body at the day of, of His coming. So, of course, we go to heaven, and when we die, our spirits do. But uh, at the resurrection, then we will have a glorious body. Christ is the firstfruits of the resurrection. And right now, today, right now, today, Christian friend, you can consider yourself a citizen of heaven because you're in Christ. That's his glorious work. But I want to say a word to the lost here. Because some of you may be lost. You're an enemy of the cross. I'm not an enemy of the cross. I don't hate God. I don't hate Jesus. But you haven't turned to him. You haven't trusted in him. You haven't believed in him. I'm sorry, but you're an enemy of the cross. And your God is your own passions. And your glory is in the shame in which you indulge. And your future is destruction. That's what it says. That's what the Bible says. Verse 19. Then what are we to do? Verse 4. Or verse one, 1 of chapter 4. We stand fast according to, to um, Philippians 1 We stand fast. And here we stand firm. Same Greek word, you know. Therefore, my beloved and long for brother in my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord my beloved. You know the devil doesn't want you to stand fast. The devil doesn't want you to stand firm. He wants to shake all of us to the very root of our foundation and belief. Chipping away, chipping away and chipping away. It's what he loves to do. He wants to see us fall. He's called the accuser and the slanderer. And he loves to have others slander us. And some people are more than willing to do that. More than willing to do that. And what is slander? Slanders false and malicious statements that damage a person's reputation. That's slander. Well stand firm, don't shrink back. And um, you know we're going to look at verse 1 again next time. Uh, So I'm going to wait before we go any further there. But I'd just like to close with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So let's turn there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I'm going to talk a little bit about eschatology. We've been talking about eschatology on on Sunday evenings through the book of Revelation. We'll be taking a a break from that for a little bit, as far as the book of Revelation goes. But, um, you know, we've been studying eschatology. Some people say, I don't understand eschatology. I don't need to understand eschatology. It's not important. And it really isn't so important what camp of eschatology you fall into. There's Christians in that are dispensational. There's Christians that are historic pre Christians that are amillennial. Christians that are post When I'm talking about eschatology, uh, I'm really not talking about that as much. Of what camp you fall into, or maybe you um, uh, don't have a camp at all. You know? uh, you're a, I don't know, millennialist. Well, whatever it happens to be. But there's one thing that every true Christian ought to agree on. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. There's going to be an end to this world as we know it. This world is not going to last as it is today uh, forever. And aren't you glad? You know, We wouldn't want this to last this way forever. And 1 Thessalonians 4 along with 1 Corinthians 15, which we won't look at t- today for lack of time, but you can look at it later, tells us really what we need to know about the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, <clears throat> Paul says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who fall fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. And I think because this was written so early from the Apostle Paul, that the Apostle Paul was rather expecting the Lord Jesus Christ to come in his lifetime. By the time we get to the end of his life, in Second Timothy, I think we can kind of see that, that he realizes he's going to, to be a martyred instead. But um, here, you know, he puts himself into the category... Therefore comfort one another with these words, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night, for when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Okay. So there's a lot you can say about eschatology. We can see many things here in this passage. At a time when you least expect it, you know, destruction comes. But why does destruction come? Because if you're not one of Christ, uh, then you do not rise. And if you're one of Christ, you do not see Him as your Savior at the second coming. You see Him as the judge. That, that's the horror of the situation. And the Lord Jesus Christ talked about as in the days of Noah. What what did Noah do? War, Noah built an ark. Everybody knows that. 120 years took him to build an ark. But Noah was also a preacher of righteousness, we see from the book of Hebrews. And so he wasn't just building an ark. He was warning people about that. And the ark became a visible symbol. And people didn't believe. People didn't trust. And still today, you can give a gospel message and unbelievers refuse to listen. But you know, the doctrine of the second coming of Christ is a very true doctrine, and it should be a comfort to you as a Christian. The doctrine should bring fear to those that are lost, and the doctrine should actually prod us to Christian living. That's what eschatology is supposed to do. It's supposed to cause us to live properly properly in the sight of the Lord. You know, of all the texts of Scripture that talk about the second coming, some things should be obvious, even from this text that I read. Christ comes unexpectedly, without anyone knowing or being able to predict the times or seasons of His coming. And guess what? If someone tells you that they know the Lord is coming in the year 2023, just ignore them. Walk away. Don't even need to argue with them, you know. The Lord's going to come, when the Lord's going to come. And we simply don't know when that is. There is no way to discern from the Scriptures where that is. There's a man, I kind of knew him. He became rather famous. Unfortunately, he became rather infamous, because he predicted the Lord was coming in 1994. And obviously, nope, the Lord didn't come in 1994. That's pretty obvious. He said, well, I miscalculated, you know. And he redid his figures. And I forgot what the date was that he said. But he came up with another date. And and this fellow, I'm talking about Harold Camping, by the way. Harold Camping was an older brother. And I believe a true brother. Harold Camping was an older brother in the Lord. And he set the date something like 17 or 18 years ahead of time. I'm sure he thought he'd be well dead by then. (laughs) God preserved his life. And he got to see his second prediction. Fall, fail. And this wasn't done in a corner. He had a radio network. He was being listened to. With a station that played good Christian music. You know. But you know. The reason I tell you that he's Christian. And I believe he's with the Lord today is because the second time when he was wrong, he said, I'm wrong. I was wrong. I should never have said that. My methodology was wrong, and I repent. What do you do when you sin? What do you do when you lead people astray? You repent. That's what you do. And you admit it. And he did. And for that, I was very, very thankful. You know. Well, if anybody's pointing to signs, try to show that Christ is just about to come, say, so, yeah, Christ is coming. You know, and, if he, and I guess if everybody just keeps predicting, and every date of the calendar gets filled, somebody's going to be right sooner or later, right? <laughs> Someone will get it right sooner or later. They cover every date, you know. Well, the time of His coming is secret. But His coming is no secret. Did, did you see what it said there? I mean, that's not much of a secret, you know. I don't know how much more visibly demonstrable it could be. There's a shout from Christ. There's the voice of an archangel. There's a trumpet blast. There's a bodily resurrection of the saved from their graves. And the Scripture tells us otherwise, elsewhere, that every eye will see Him. It'll be the best day for Christians. It'll be the worst day for the lost. The tribes of the earth will mourn, and the lost will cry out for the rocks to cover them. The destruction is sudden, And there is no escape. And just like the flood came and washed away the world that was, so it'll be. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth, even different, more different, than the world after the time of Noah. One thing you can be assured of, lost men are going to go on eating and drinking, Marrying and giving in marriage, that's not a sin. You know, just living life is what the Bible's talking about. People just go on living life. In Noah's day, they went on living life until the flood took them away. Life goes on without any seeming cause for alarm. Not even that alarm, you know. But at his coming, suddenly everything changes just like the flood changed everything. We believe that because the Bible says that. The second coming of Christ is the blessed hope. It's the consummation of all things. It's the end of the world as we know it. It ushers in the final judgment. This is the resurrection when believers of all ages receive their new glorified bodies, as First Corinthians 15 teaches us in great detail. It ushers in the eternal state. And if you want, the closest thing the Bible gives us to a time period a time framework. It's not, a, it's not meant to be a perfect one, but it kind of gives you a sequence. We won't turn there right now, but Second Peter chapter 3 is where you would go. Second Peter chapter 3. But the words of comfort, so shall we ever be with the Lord. As surely as Jesus died and rose again, that's how sure He's going to come again. And the Bible tells us that in Acts one eleven. This same Jesus, what, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which was taken from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So I'll conclude with that. Just saying, do you know him? Are you trusting him for salvation? Outside of Him there is no safety. Outside of Him there is no hope. Outside of Him there is only the righteous wrath of God, the wrath that Jesus took upon Himself for those that believe in Him and those that trust in Him. Do you know Christ as Savior? Is He your Lord? Are you trusting in Him alone? Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to the portion of Scripture that we looked at today, we see the reality that there are those that are in Christ and have role models and patterns to follow. And of course, the Scriptures to guide us and the Holy Spirit within to lead us. All these things given to us during this particular time until you're pleased to take us to glory. Or until you're pleased to come again and end the world as we know it. But Lord, you've also told us they're enemies. Sometimes the enemies of the cross look to be decent, kind, moral human beings. But Lord, if they're not in Christ, if they don't believe in Christ, if they're not trusting in Christ, help them to see their enemies. And help them to throw up the white flag and surrender and repent. And turn to you. So the war will be over. Lord, your grace causes this to happen. We thank you for your matchless grace. Your wonderful grace. Lord, help us now to walk a walk that's worthy of you. And may Jesus Christ receive all the glory. In his name we pray. Amen.